recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. Welcome to episode number 49 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchie, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend, and you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or subscribe to our podcast on YouTube and SoundCloud as well, and our newsletter, of course, at prlawpodcast.club. Ewan, as the intro was uh, sounding there, I popped up and turned on the air conditioner. It's uh, 8.30 <laughs> in the morning here in Hong Kong, but it is hot already. Uh, I think we're at that time of year. Right on. Well, hey, that's great to hear. I'm, I'm happy for you. You know, I can't say the same, but I'm happy for you, Cameron. What's what's going on? Well, other than the, other than the weather, you know, I think uh, we're OK. But that ship stuck in the Suez Canal there. <laughs> this is. Oh, uh, man. <laughs> it is amazing, actually. I think if there's one lesson over the past year, especially with the pandemic, which obviously we could not really control at all. You know, once it spread around Wuhan, it was kind of destined to go global. Uh and then, and now this this massive container ship that is just <laughs> stuck in the sand uh, in the Suez Canal, and it's it's blocking international trade, billions of dollars. It's just amazing that something honestly so silly has had such a massive impact. But both of yeah, these humans could not I, solve. I'm, I'm totally with you, and I'm glad you brought this up because this is I've just been so just completely enthralled with this story all week cam i've been following along closely on twitter i've been checking out all the the crazy memes that have been popping up and it's sort of this reminds me of cam you know i know you were a family guy fan i never really watched it it, it wasn't really a, a show i ever got into but i do recall sort of a, a star wars spoof that they did and um what's the name of the the the, the baby with the baby that's sort of grown up and he's kind of this sort of intellectual mastermind, but he's just a small child. Oh, we're going to get made fun name? of to people listening to this right now. Cause now I can't think of it either, but I know that you're talking to the football head baby, but what? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, anyway yeah. so he, 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 there's, a, there's this whole bit in the star Wars themed episode where they're talking about the death star and he has this whole sort of monologue where he says, so wait a minute, let me get this straight. We're talking about this massive piece of infrastructure that's absolutely essential to the sustainability of the empire and yet it comes with this completely ridiculous fatal flaw in the center of it that anybody can just <laughs> go in shoot and the entire thing is destroyed and i was sort of thinking about that this week with uh with this suez canal story because you realize like man i mean there are just so many things that we take for granted that can completely and utterly collapse um, because of one, uh, well, I wouldn't say a small mishap, a rather mammoth mishap in, in this case, but that, yeah, I mean, it's just this, it's this one ship, 
in the Suez Canal and global trade has come to a virtual standstill on account of it. It's fascinating. Yeah. And actually, I'm going to bring this up in our in our check this out segment. So so if you're interested in this, yeah, ha- hang around because there is a bit more we have uh, on this subject. But you know what's interesting, Ewan? So it's the um, it's the ever given, right? That's the ship, but it's the Evergreen yeah. Company of Taiwan. Um, but I did see just before we 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 started recording uh, today, somebody said that he mentioned to a Chinese friend, like, "Hey, there's a there's a Chinese ship stuck in this in the Suez Canal," and the person in China said, "It's Taiwanese," <laughs> and the guy said he did not know how to respond to that. But I guess there you go. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. All right, you and I understand you've got something to mention about Goldman Sachs, that uh, investment bank from New York City. Yeah, you've you've heard of it. You've heard it. You're familiar with it. I have heard of it. Indeed. Not often (laughs) in a positive way. Yeah, well, uh, they were they were making making waves in Wall Street earlier this week, Cam, perhaps not for the right reasons. Uh, This was 13 first year analysts at Goldman Sachs scam and they circulated a slide deck talking about things like how they'd been working 100 hour weeks and the impact it was having on their their mental and physical health and it ended up very very quickly doing the rounds uh, on the socials and has become quite an interesting story um the slide deck and we'll we'll put a link to this in the in the show notes cam because it's mm-hmm. it's a pretty meticulous deck i mean it's it's on branded goldman sachs print um it's got lots of pie charts and and graphs it's 11 pages long um you know and, and it has information like according to the deck analysts are sleeping an average of five hours a night they don't go to bed until 3 a.m um, it, there was one category where analysts are rating their mental health at like an 8.8 out of 10 before starting at Goldman's. And yet that, that ratings dropped to like 2.8 after starting and the physical health was rating even worse. They're coming in at like nine out of 10 before they started. And it had dropped to 2.3 after starting. Um, I mean, just crazy stuff, Cam. 77% of the analysts said that they'd been victims of workplace abuse and 75% claimed to have sought therapy as a result of mental health issues. So some pretty um, eye-opening stuff, I guess. Uh, you know, I mean, the the, the feedback and some of this, the stuff that I've seen on the socials has been interesting around this, where a lot of people are saying, well, yeah, I mean what did you expect? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what your take is or if you've heard about well, this, but certainly an interesting story. Yeah. And I mean, I should mention also when we're talking about Goldman Sachs, because there was that famous uh, descriptor coined by Matt Taibbi at the Rolling Stone uh, after the financial crisis, <laughs> which I just looked up to make sure I got the words correct. But Matt Taibbi called the bank a great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity, relentlessly jamming its blood funnel into anything that smells like money. 
And I think that's quite, <laughs> it's quite accurate. That's pretty good. Um, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Vampire squid has kind of become synonymous with Goldman Sachs. Um, but anyway, um, you know, it's funny that you bring this up because I had just listened to sort of an episode of that pivot podcast with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway, and they were talking about firms like Goldman or McKinsey and how, you know, if, if you end up working for one of these firms as someone in your twenties, you can put your career kind of on a rocket ship and you're going to get so much experience and you're going to make so much money and you're going to be traveling the world and meeting incredible people that, you know, when you leave there and they said like a lot of people are ushered out, Galloway was saying, you know, around age 40, a lot of these people are ushered out because they're, they're tired. <laughs> you know, they're not contributing as much as they used to when they were younger, but they look after those people. And that's how these big firms continue to get the best and the brightest. But I have wondered for a while now, how long can those hours in this treatment continue in this kind of a society where we're paying a lot more attention to things like sleep hours and and mental health in particular because you're right these jobs you are compensated insanely well i mean a lot of these people at goldman if you're an analyst you, you can get million dollar bonuses at christmas time and a lot more than a million dollars in your bonus i mean they 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 are really well compensated to work there and so then you think well, well you know why are they well compensated well not everyone wants to do those hours. Not everyone's willing to make those sacrifices. But the question is, should they even be asked to make those kinds of sacrifices? I think that's the crux of this story. Is it okay, even if you're being paid insane sums of money, to work like that and to be expected to work like that? And I don't have an answer to that, Ewan. I think that's a tough one. Yeah, well, it is. It is It is a difficult question, and you're right. I mean, to to each to each their own. And, you know, you and I have talked about this many, many times um, off air, particularly in the context of our, of our families, right? I mean, we both have pretty demanding jobs. And I think it's often difficult for um, for, for our, our, our parents or even people of our own generation that are, are in sort of more reasonable lines of work to sort of understand and, and grasp the responsibilities that come with high pressure, high stress positions where your availability 24-7 is something of an expectation um, and that, yes, you're well compensated, but to suggest that there aren't sacrifices that are made for that compensation would be ridiculous because there are. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's interesting you brought up uh, Scott Galloway in that podcast, Cam. You sort of you sort of stole my thunder a little bit because um, I, too, caught that. And there was one quote in particular that I wanted to read that that Professor Scott Galloway talked about in that episode of the Pivot Podcast. And I guess we can probably put a link in our show notes to that um, that episode as well. Um, You know, he said, if you're a 23-year-old who got a job at Goldman Sachs, you have more options than perhaps any individual in the world. You've decided that by the time you're 25 or 26, you want to leave Goldman and go make half a million dollars working at a private equity fund. And guess what? That means having no life. Um, and, you know, I, I get that. And, and much of the feedback I've read online has actually been consistent with Galloway's position, which is, look, you know, 
yeah, look at what they're paying you. Look at what these bonuses are. What did you expect? Were you were you expecting sort of a, you know, a clock in, clock out, nine to five sort of role? Well, of course not. And, you know, you're compensated uh, accordingly. But where I think Galloway might be a little bit off and where I think some of the criticism is off in this very, very particular case, Cam, is the context. And the context is remote work and the pandemic. And that was sort of the the aspect that I think is kind of important here from an employer-employee perspective. Okay. Because, I mean, you know, while remote work has been great in many ways, you know, the distance between employers, employees, as you know, well as employees and their colleagues, it's really resulted in a lack of human contact. And I think that has really impacted workplace culture. And in some cases, it's resulted in a less loyal workplace. I think it's it's easier to sympathize, for example, with a struggling employee when you see them at work each day. Um, I think employers are more inclined to go to bat for an employee that they have a personal relationship with and, and regular contact with. And I think that distance has exacerbated a lot of these issues and concerns. And that was certainly something that was expressed um, by the analysts themselves that, you know, effectively, you don't have that human contact. So even when somebody's asking you to put in 80 hours to to put some slide deck together for, for a meeting of a group of executives, at least you have some relationship, some face-to-face time with that individual um, that you can go to them, you can ask them questions. But in this case, you know, that that human-to-human contact has been completely removed. And I think that's a problem. And I think it's something that we need to very, very seriously sit back and reflect on if we're going to continue along this path of remote work. Um, because for all of its benefits, removing that element of human contact and that development of those relationships between an employer and employee, I think it could have some very, very dramatic repercussions. And this is a great illustration of that. Okay. I'm I'm going to push back just a little bit here, only because that is kind of one kind of remote work. And I, I actually see this a lot. There's sort of conclusions drawn in articles and elsewhere about what remote work means. But I do feel like remote work is so different depending on the field that you're working in or the, or the style of your company and all of these sorts of things. Because, like, for instance, even in, in my job where I have not been in the office for most of the last year, I would say, I'm on calls and meetings almost nonstop throughout the day. So I've got plenty of contact with colleagues and my superiors, and it's regular and hours a week probably uh, talking to them. So in that sense, it's it, it's really no different than, than being in the office. In fact, I might talk to them more working remotely uh, because in a way we have a bit more time. There's no commutes involved and you know things like that. Um, but, but I do think remote work needs to be studied because I think for certain people, remote work is going to be very difficult. And I know some people have had problems working at home alone because you're right, there's not the socialization factor of coming in and talking to people and connecting and going down for a coffee quickly and running into somebody you know and you know stuff like that that that, that, that some people really value. Um, so I think we, we have to study that. But but for for Goldman in particular and and Scott Galloway's point, I'm gonna sound probably quite old fashioned on this. Um, I don't recommend people take these jobs. I just don't. I think most people are not geared towards them mentally. I think you've got to be quite strong mentally. And even if you are, that's no guarantee that you're not going to struggle 
in these roles that are highly demanding and that potentially keep you away from, from your families. But there are people out there who are ambitious and who are willing to do this. And to some degree, we need those people. Um, you know, even my, my dad would often say, you know, why are you doing work on a evening or why are you doing work on your holiday or why, you know, why on the weekend? And I was always say to him, like, if, if, if something, if there was a natural disaster in Canada, you would expect the prime minister to come out and speak, right? Like you wouldn't think, oh, it's a Saturday. The prime minister will be back on Monday. You know, he could speak then. Like you, you would, you would expect him to be there because that's his job. And there's actually a lot of jobs like that where something happens and it doesn't matter if it's evening or weekend. It's a big crisis. It's something that's affecting your company or your customers or, or whatever it might be. And so you have to be there. There's no, you, it, you like the news cycle, especially in communications, the news cycle doesn't wait. You know, if reporters are calling you, they're working on the weekend. You, you can't say, call me back on Monday, because if you do that, you know, you're going to get skewered in the press for two days before you can get your message out there. So it's not, it's not like somebody is sitting there trying to take advantage of you for this. It's just life. It's actually society's expectations without really knowing that it's society's expectations. But, but people are expected to talk and to communicate and to work when these kinds of things happen. And um, it's, it's tough for some people to understand, I think. Yeah, I, and I, I wouldn't disagree with the whole latter half of what you said, although I'm what I'm more curious about, Cam, is is what you said at the beginning. So, I mean, do you really and, I, and I'm asking you, I, I mean, do you really believe that the virtual meetings or chats or phone calls, whatever it may be that you have, are truly the equivalent of having those same engagements in person? Do you think that they are as effective I, and I, and I'm genuinely asking. Yes. Yeah, I do. For me, they are. And, and I should mention something to you. Like I work at a technology company, right? So we don't have face-to-face meetings. It doesn't, it's like they don't exist. Uh, we have a small office here in Hong Kong and I've got a team in Beijing. I've got some people in Shenzhen, some people in, in San Francisco. We, we, we can never talk to each other in the office anyway. This is all we have. And it's been a pandemic. So like I'm the boss of some people who, have never met me in person ever. So, hmm. I mean, it has been fine though. I, I work with them closely. We talk multiple times a day. I feel like I do. I mean, I would, don't get me wrong. I would like to meet them. It would be nice to see them in person. Um, I think that would be great, but I also don't think it's impacted our work one bit. And I think it's been fine and we're delivering and we're getting things done. Um, so I haven't had a problem with it. And, and even when, if there's a meeting and we are all in the office, we will still connect via Tencent meeting um, to connect that way uh, and sit at our desks and do the meeting. And I find that much more convenient. I'm not grabbing books or binders or papers and printing things off and frantically running to a meeting room. I'm just connecting from my desk and there's everybody and I can share my screen or give a presentation or, or whatever. So for me, absolutely. I prefer this way. I find it much easier, much more convenient. It saves time. Um, I, I love it, but, but I know that that's just me, right? Like there are some people that have a hard time connecting over, over, over communicate over the internet that way and feel it doesn't replace or maybe even come close to replacing sort of an in-person conversation. And um, that's why I say at the beginning, there's different fields here where this will apply in some places, but not others. Um, it's not a one size fits all when we're talking about remote work. 
Yeah. And I think, I think that's a great point. It, there is no one size fits all solution here. Um, I, I do think though that, and again, perhaps it's, it's, it's specific to your, your particular profession, um, that there is something that has been lost in that in-person collaborative engagement and that it's, I, I think it is more difficult to sort of build those sustainable relationships because that's, what's really interesting about the labor relationship in general, right? The people that you work with that, Yes, you expect them to do good work and they expect you to do good work. But that over the long term, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, um, in, in the rare instances where people still stay yeah, in the same work environment, not, not that that happens very much anymore, yeah. um, but that you do, particularly in demanding roles, right, um, where you are working around the clock on a project, for example, you can develop a very, very close relationship very, very quickly with those individuals on your team, um, whatever that team may be. Um, and my concern is that something has been lost there in that remote element that, you know, having a, having a Slack group with five people who are working on a project, um, while it might be more quote unquote efficient in that, yes, we don't all have to leave our homes and physically commute to a physical space and then turn around and return home at the end of the day. Um, and there's all kinds of practical advantages to that, that the, something's been lost in terms of developing that collaborative relationship with those members that, you know, you go to war with depending on, on, on what the circumstances are and what the project is. And I do think that something's been lost there. And I think that that does draw a distinction between sort of a pre pandemic work environment and what we're dealing with now. I, um, I'm not going to disagree with you on that. There may well be something lost, but I am going to go out on a limb and say we're going to get used to that. Whatever that is, it may be lost forever in many cases because we're going to start building relationships around that. And, and I, I mean, I see this kind of happening already. I mean, you were talking about, you know, how, how do you build a, a, a as strong of a relationship when you're only, you know, communicating remotely? I mean, I, even within my own team, one of my star performers is not in this office here. And it's someone who I have hired in another office in another country and who I talk to almost every day and who is probably the closest person that I am to my own team. And, you know, she's been absolutely outstanding. And I've, I made sure at the end of last year to that she got, you know, rewarded for her, her work. And, and again, I've never met her in person. But I, I certainly feel like I, I know her. I mean, we talk regularly, and so it, it does have that feel. I mean, you take a look at people who form relationships online, you know, if, if, if they find a boyfriend or a girlfriend in another part of the world or another part of the country, they can end up talking for years before meeting in person. And I would say that those relationships are still real, you know, even though they haven't met. So it, it is different. It is different in each in each role, for sure. And I Probably agree with you that something is lost when you're not sitting across from the person looking them in the eye. But I also think that we are amazingly adaptable. And it's it, it was jarring, you know, when the pandemic hit, suddenly all of us who, you know, had not been working remotely suddenly had to work remotely. And that's a that's difficult to ask of people all in, in one fell swoop. 
Um, usually this is a slow transition, but there are so many companies out there that have, that have been working remotely for years already. I think of even, you know, nine to five Mac, which is a, it's a multi-million dollar business. Um, the, the, all of the staff there are remote as well and have never met each other in person unless they decide to do a road trip and meet socially. Um, and you know, I'm part of that, that, that newsroom as well. And I see everyone chatting and I'm in there chatting usually as if we're in, in the office <laughs> and you can, you know, quickly do a quick video call if you want to have a chat about something or, or whatever it might be. So I don't disagree with what you said, Ewan, but I do think that we're going to find ways around it and be more accepting of what is lost. If I have to make a prediction, I think that's the direction we'll ultimately head. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I hope that we'll, and, and I think you make a very good point. We are remarkably adaptable, and it's not like the the work environment hasn't changed a great deal in the last ten years from where it was before, and the ten years before that, there were always sort of these fundamental shifts in the way that in the way that we work, in the way that we organize our labor, and in the way that we develop um, a workplace culture. And you know, nothing's going to remain static in that regard. Uh, just before we move on, you know, one thing I did want to say here, Cam, is that. I think employers, at the very least, they need to be making a concerted effort to check in on their employees yes. and monitor their well-being. And that, that again, to to your point, depending on the type of work you're doing, the type of environment, can mean different things. But there needs to be something. There needs to be regular check-ins to make sure that things aren't going off the rails and aren't falling and people aren't falling through the cracks. Um, you know, and also I think employers, they need to do everything that they can to create a workplace environment and culture. And that's harder to do when things are being developed remotely and that workplace culture is effectively being developed remotely. But they need to do something to ensure that employees um are open and comfortable coming forward to discuss concerns, particularly around issues like mental health. And I do think at the very least, there have been some fantastic developments and advancements and some fantastic literature and articles. And we've talked about a lot of them on the show um, about workplace mental health and things that can be done to, to make sure that we're promoting healthy workplace environments. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know what, you and I'm glad you, you mentioned this because I completely agree. I think, you know, when, when, when people are coming into an office, it might also be hard to detect if someone's having some problems or some trouble because people hide that naturally uh, or often hide it. And it might be very subtle cues that you pick up over, you know, several weeks perhaps um, that can lead you to a conversation with that person potentially. But if you're not seeing them at all in person, it becomes that much harder to try and detect any issue. And I think you're right. If we, if we are moving to this model, there's going to have to be new ways of interacting in terms of HR with, with employees, new ways of checking in with them uh, for issues like, you know, mental health or, or other problems they might be having. Um, because this is new, you're right. And this is really, really important because I do think that all of this remote work um, has been difficult for a lot of people. I really do believe that. I think younger people tend to have, a, have an easier time with it, you know, or people who have been working online since, you know, college or high school or whatever, and using Slack to connect. That's sort of second nature for a lot of people. But for people who are sort of established in their careers, you and like you and I, even to some degree, uh, um, this can be this can be really hard. There, there's there are are you know real real difficult difficult times that that people face with this transition, and so yeah, we need to be very uh, alert to that, and we need to take it seriously, and we need to find a way to make sure that those people are okay. 
Show your support to the PRN Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. So MIT Technology Review, Ewan, uh, an excellent publication that I definitely recommend. Uh, they published a, a long-form article on Facebook recently. And yes, we're bringing up Facebook again. <laughs> it seems to be uh, the, the brunt of our criticism here. Uh, but, but deservedly so, I would argue. Um, anyway, yes, there was a long article uh, on, on AI in particular at Facebook. Now, you, and you know that... Um, Facebook has has been criticized for its algorithms, which present users with content that is designed to get them to engage. And, you know, it's common knowledge that if you provide them with more extreme content or content that touches on their policy guidelines, that that's more engaging content. That's more likely to get people to click or to view or to watch or to read or to join. Um, or whatever it might be. And I think this really came to a head during the uh, January 6th insurrection uh, in Washington, D.C. Now, you and you don't use Facebook, right? I mean, you're not a day-to-day scroller. Do you, do you open up that news feed, though, and scroll through there occasionally, or are you just totally off the platform? I'm, I, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty off the platform. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. there's probably, you know, I, I think, we, you know, we've talked about this before. I'm sort of like a, a once a, a quarter Mm-hmm. check in check it on facebook um and and that's you know that's really really about it i really do not see any value in that platform at all anymore it's just it's it's kind of dead to me yeah that's where i'm at uh, about four years ago now i just i and i remember this too when i was looking through facebook and i was on the news feed and one of our high school friends had gone to Mexico on a holiday and I clicked a photo or I tapped a photo cause I was on my phone and I thought to myself, why am I looking at this? Like why <laughs> I, this is a person who I have not spoken to in 20 years. Um, I have n- no interest really in what they're doing. Why am I looking at their vacation photos? And it, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I thought, why, like, why am I doing this? And um, yeah. that was pretty much the last time that I've gone through Facebook and that was several, I quit cold Turkey for the most part. My account is still there. If you see it, it'll say that I don't use Facebook and find me on email or Twitter or something. Um, and I do go in there for the podcast. Uh, if I have to post something on the, on the page, our, our Facebook page, but even that I mostly use other tools to do that. So I very, very rarely go in uh, even for that purpose. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, one of the compelling arguments that I, I would consistently hear for it is, well, but all my family members are on there and that's how I keep, keep up with what's going on. And I can see pictures of my granddaughter and, and what have you. And I'm thinking, well, but in the age of, of instant message platforms and, you know, I, we, we want to move people to signal and telegram and away from WhatsApp, for example, Mm -hmm. but you can create as everybody knows, right? I mean, you can create groups where you can set up a family group. I have one with my own and we, we can all share photos of each other and, and check in and send messages. And it's fantastic. And here's the thing about it, Cam. It's not voyeuristic. It's not, I, I don't have to be concerned about random individuals 
checking in on, you know, what on my vacation photos or anything like that. It's restricted to my immediate family. And I like that idea. I think it's fantastic. And I think people who are out there who haven't moved to that model and gotten off of Facebook, give it a shot. I think you'll find you might feel a little bit more comfortable in terms of your privacy, knowing that there's maybe five other people that have access to those messages and photos as opposed to God knows how many others that, that may have either hacked into your Facebook profile or have found some backdoor access to it. Um, just, you know, go that route instead. Yeah. And that's the rudimentary way. And I think it's the easiest way for people to do it. Just create a chat group and add your family into it. Yeah. On telegram or signal or even WhatsApp. I mean, that's still better than Facebook. Um, but then there's other tools through, through Google photos or through, through iCloud that even allow you to create shared albums where different people in the family can add photos and you can comment on them and like them and, you know, and, and that's totally closed to whoever is allowed into that group. Right. So there's a lot of different options out there. You don't have to publish them, you know, on, on Facebook for people to see them. You're right. That's that's totally a, a misnomer. It's not the only thing you, you can do. Um, but on the on the issue uh, that I want to talk about today, which is really around AI. And so, I mean, just so people understand on this call, I'm going to assume that a lot of people are not that familiar with AI or machine learning. But the, the two of them are are quite formidable when you put them together. So AI is basically... A computer being able to make a decision based on a set of facts or a set of information or a set of data. And it's able to, to understand the data and make that decision. Machine learning kind of ups the ante a bit because it means that new data is always coming in to that data set. And so the decision being made by AI could evolve or could change you know, based on the, the data that's coming in. And Facebook has been deploying this for its advertising for a very long time. So when you think about, you know, an ad on Facebook, um, if it's for yoga pants or something, you know, they can detect who clicked that ad, who looked at the ad, you know, who spent time on the on this Facebook page that that ad linked to, how long did they spend time there? Um, and this, all of this data just goes into this data pool and it updates the AI, and it just gets better and better and better and better when it offers up material. Facebook obviously thinks, wow, this is great because their advertising business is booming. Let's move this to content in general. So when people open their news feeds, we're presenting them with the content from their quote-unquote friends who are posting you know, really, really engaging content. And there is all kinds of data inside Facebook and outside Facebook that this is extreme content. And there are facts now that show the polarization in America has been driven largely by Facebook. This is no longer really even in dispute. So the article at MIT Technology Review, Facebook made a couple of their executives available for an interview, and they really did a deep dive into this subject. The problem was Facebook is really focused on bias in AI, which is kind of a different problem. Um, and bias is, for instance, if you're posting a, uh, you know, a, a rental, if you've got your basement suite and you want to post a, an ad on Facebook, sometimes Facebook was not showing that ad to black people, for instance. And again, that's just AI automatically filtering that out based on the data sets that it has. So it has to kind of get rid of that, but that's illegal, first of all, to do that. 
Um, but second of all, you know, it, it's it, there's a there's a bias that's built into AI that needs to be addressed. And Mark Zuckerberg has spent quite a bit of energy on this. Except that while that is a problem, the much bigger problem is misinformation and extremism. And that seems to have been left behind by Facebook because anything that addresses that problem necessarily lowers the engagement rate. And we saw this Mm -hmm. before the election as well. We saw it after the election. Facebook has at times temporarily done so to prevent misinformation and engagement rates drop. And that's a problem. The, the, the company is geared around growth, and that's the singular goal that's built into their, their performance uh, reviews and appraisals is growth. And so it's very difficult to get any, any traction here. So this is kind of the conclusion of this article. And what's interesting is Facebook came back hard, and the editor of MIT Technology Review shared some of this on Twitter about what Facebook PR was doing to try and combat this article. So the first, Ewan, I'm not going to share my opinion on these quite yet, but Facebook came back to the publication with a long list of supposed factual errors or mistakes. Um, Right, right. I'm sure they did. This is done. Uh, It's not the first time I have heard this. Uh, Basically, if there are that many factual mistakes, then yes, the reporter or the editor or the fact checker, or all three, were clearly derelict. But as they went through this list, it turned out only a couple of them were actual factual mistakes, and the rest were not. And they interpreted that really as a as an attempt to kind of intimidate the reporter and scare the reporter into potentially retracting the story or changing the story. So that's one. Second one, Ewan, Facebook also pushed back with a long list of things the company is doing to combat misinformation. Um, I think this one is a little bit more effective personally, but it still doesn't negate what was written. That's the interesting thing. So it didn't actually contradict the, the, the article's central thesis, but what it did do was try and explain that, look, we are doing a lot of things to, to address this. So Again, it's 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 additional information that you can either choose to include or not, but it doesn't dispute the article. But it does sometimes provide confusion. Again, to to the reporter, to the editor, if Facebook releases this, it can it can basically kind of you know, as the editor used the term, flood the zone. You know, just provide as much info as you can uh, to try and just confuse matters and put some doubt onto the article. Um, it's, it's not ideal to do that. I mean, when, when you're going down this path, you're in trouble already, I think as a PR person. Um, so these are not things that I would normally recommend certainly, you know, and then I'm going to sort of lump two together here, which is kind of purposely, um, lead readers to misunderstand the article. So the article does look at one particular team inside of Facebook, but makes very clear that it's emblematic of sort of a a larger company culture um, and that this team is trying to do some good things. But, you know, there there are forces larger at play within Facebook. And, you know, Facebook CTO went on to Twitter and said, like, well, you know, how can you pick on this one team? You know, if you're going to pick on one team, it shouldn't be these guys because these guys are doing their best to, you know, really combat combat misinformation, which which purposely sort of misinterprets the article. It didn't, it didn't pick on that one group. But sometimes when you hear a CTO come across that way, you think, yeah, 
you know, that's really not right of that publication to be picking on these guys. And they're putting so much energy into combating misinformation. So they're subtle. Like these things are kind of subtle, but they're attempts to just cause some confusion and misunderstanding. And unfortunately, sometimes they do work. Wow. So, I mean, so effectively they're, I mean, this is almost kind of a microcosm of the, the actual misinformation campaigns that you find in the platform (laughs) itself (laughs) being carried out vis-a-vis this particular article. It's so, it's sort of fascinating. It's like, no, 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 we would never think to do that. Now watch us do it with your particular argument saying that we do this. Um, I mean, the sort of circular logic is, is just truly fascinating, right? Yeah. I mean, it is, (laughs) it's Facebook. I mean, I mean, uh, the last thing I want to mention here, Ewan, is the company has also released uh, kind of a a guideline or a book on misinformation and AI. It's a playbook, an employee playbook. Uh, And it's passed out to the employees to help them, you know, in their communities with their friends and family explain, you know, what Facebook is doing uh, to try and combat polarization. And, you know, this is not uncommon. And I will say, you know, PR people will often say, you know, your, your best advocates are your employees because, you know, they're the ones that, that know the company. And if you can empower them with information, you know, they're out in the community and they're talking to people. Why not give them information that they can share and, and say on your behalf to, to sort of get your messages out there? So this is not uncommon to do this kind of thing. I think the issue here is that obviously this leaked to the media and even employees are saying this doesn't it doesn't say it doesn't you know dispute any of the claims made against facebook um and that it's it's quite weak in its arguments uh around polarization and um you know if if you go through this material you can see that the polarization that's happening and the misinformation is ultimately just good for facebook's business and there is no incentive to to reduce it and that's kind of where we're at and, you know, to some degree, you say, okay, well, I get that. I mean, we, our structure, our capitalist structure is set up uh, to reward this, right? And if we want to change it, we're going to have to think of another way to do it. But I don't think Facebook is going to be a good actor uh, on its own without being pushed. And I think just that's the realization we're getting to. I, and, I, I, you know, in closing you, and I, I wanted to say one more thing here, which is I think Facebook's ultimate mistake, I think... When you're getting to the point where you're trying to flood the zone with information or trying to confuse the batter or sort of gaslight people, it really, they needed to be more careful with the interview that MIT Technology Review allowed a couple of their executives uh, to have, because that's where most of the information came out, actually. They spent quite a bit of time with Facebook's head of AI. And, you know, I get that. Facebook thinks, you know, we want to come out and we want to talk about bias, you know, bias in AI, which yes, is a legitimate subject, but it also kind of pales in comparison to the larger subject around polarization, which is what led to the January 6th insurrection. Um, But there wasn't any good messaging around that. And the PR team sort of misjudged that. And once you've opened up your executives that way to talk about these things, and there are quotes from some of these executives on these subjects that don't look good, um, then you've kind of, you've not done your job. I mean, quite, quite frankly, 
Um, so you need to be aware of these things. You need to know what the reporters are going to ask. And you don't want to put your executives out there that way unless you're sure you know what they're going to be asked about and that you're okay with it. So to me, that's where the dereliction of duty comes in. And that's kind of the PR lesson here, which is be very careful when you're putting your executives up for interviews. Yeah, I mean, wow, you really nailed it there again. I completely, completely, completely agree. Um, and uh, if, if actually my great takeaway, though, is going to be flood the zone, because I wasn't familiar with that phrase. And I'm totally, totally going to use that going forward. <laughs> it does work. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa, hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out, check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR and Law podcast. All right, what do you got, Ewan? Cam, I watched the Tina Turner documentary on HBO last night. And it no was way. awesome. No way. It was awesome. Um, yeah, it's brand new. It just debuted last night. Tina Turner's 81 years old. Cam, Jeez. you want to feel old? Wow. She's 81. Wow. Um, and this is just an amazing, amazing doc. It's sort of, it, it, uh, you know, it goes right back to her early days coming up with Ike Turner. It, does not shy away from the abusive relationship that she, she went on to have with Ike Turner and then talks about her, her attempts to separate and ultimately gets away. And then the, her burgeoning career to go on to become, you know, just a huge, huge superstar um, through the eighties while she was in her fifties. I mean, it's, it's remarkable that, you know, she was sort of 51 years old when she played her biggest show before 180,000 people in Rio. Um, just really defying all the logic and, and typical sort of trajectory of the pop star and the rock and roll star. It's a, a really amazing story. It's got some killer footage and um, just some really, really fantastic interviews with Tina herself. Just an absolute force of nature. I highly recommend it. All right. Um, yeah, I'm noticing more of these documentaries popping up. I love this this era of uh, Netflix and HBO Max and Hulu because there's so many good documentaries out there. Um, I'm actually just in the middle of watching one called The Pharmacist. Uh, I don't know if you've, you've seen it. It actually came out, I think, a year ago. But it's on... Um, yeah, uh, a, a white kid who was gunned down in New Orleans uh, in, a, uh, in a drug deal. And then later, his dad discovering the Oxycontin crisis. It kind of links two things together. And it's quite, uh, honestly, it's a difficult watch. There's a lot of emotional scenes in it. But it's a, it's a, it's a really powerful uh, documentary. I'm just two, two episodes into the four, four episode special. Um, but the, the main thing I wanted to talk about, you and I'm stealing this from you because you tweeted this out earlier. <laughs> Uh, an article that says it has been 20 years since Fabio killed a goose with his face on a roller coaster. <laughs> and uh, this is, if you need a chuckle, if you're having a rough day, <laughs> give this article a read. I guarantee you it will at the very least put a smile on your face and more likely have you kind of in stitches laughing at the writing. And you know, you and when you when you shared this, the the article is actually from 2019, so it has been 22 years since he killed a goose with his face. But it's, uh, yeah, I, I I remember this barely, like it wasn't like I, I I do remember this being news at some point, but I had obviously completely I had completely forgotten about Fabio actually, <laughs> just I hadn't thought of him in a very long time. Um, but, but it's just a, it's just a hilarious read. It's not very long, but, uh, do yourself a favor and, and, and give it a read. 
Well, Cam, I'm I'm very glad you brought that up, and it's funny because I was going to talk about that. I, thought, I thought you might. No, you know what I mean, <laughs> I thought you might. You know, this is the podcast, and we should really try and have some higher brow <laughs> content than that. So, I'm glad yeah. you brought it up, Cam. I'm glad you went there, and I will absolutely vouch for this article. This, I promise you, will be the funniest thing that you have read in some time. The headline alone, I think, is is worthy of an award. Um, Mike tool. If you're, if you're out there, because I, I, you know, when I tweeted it out, he and I had a bit of an exchange uh, following, following my sort of pointing this article out and a number of people had commented on it. So Mike tool, if you're listening, bravo, sir. Um, keep up the good work. It's uh it's a fantastic piece. <laughs> you know, I read that. So when you tweeted out last week, I read it and I laughed and I actually looked at it again last night, you know, to get ready for the podcast. And I, I laughed again. I was in bed and I was laughing as I was reading it. Uh, this is great. So yeah, definitely check that out. Uh, anything else you want, you want to, you want to chime in? I have a meeting in eight minutes. So, uh, but you've got a minute if you want to say anything else before we sign off. No. Oh, Ewan has gone offline. Jeez, the timing of that was perfect. Ewan is literally offline right now. I don't know what happened to his internet connection. Anyway, that means I can sign off at least. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Don't miss a show in the future. You you can subscribe in your podcast app of choice or to our YouTube and SoundCloud channels. And you can follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and our newsletter at prlawpodcast.club. So for you and Christy, who is not around, he'll be around next week. So will I. This is Cam McMurchie. Light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewan Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.